0: If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 111 for our Old Testament Scripture reading this morning. Here the psalmist attests to the wonderful works of God, and among these things that he extols the Lord for is for his loving kindness and mercy. Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart and the company of the upright and the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is His work and His righteousness endures forever. He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered, but the Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just, and all of his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people, he has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. and all those who practice it have a good understanding, His praise endures forever. And now turning with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter five, as we continue making our way through uh, the Sermon on the Mount, in particular, uh, the opening portion there of the Beatitudes, we come now to the fifth. Of those eight blessings that Jesus pronounces upon the citizens of heaven. Whereas he says here in verse 7 Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do pray that in your mercy you would open our eyes to see. What it is that Your Son says that we might believe and do all that He has given to us. Those precious promises we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Having crossed the halfway point now in this series on the Beatitudes, we come to a turning point in our particular study. Perhaps you have noticed this as we have been considering the Beatitudes over the past several weeks. The first four of these blessings are largely vertical in their dimension. When I say vertical, I mean it regards man's relationship to God. Jesus pronounces a blessing upon the spiritually destitute, those who grieve their present estate of sin and misery, those who reign in their passions to the reign of God. Recall, that is what meekness means. A reigning in of our passions to the rule and reign of God and those who hunger and thirst for that alien righteousness in other words these first four blessings by and large have to do with our status before God that all that we have before the throne of God is something that God graciously blesses us with Blessed are those who are spiritually impoverished, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for here is the great blessing. You shall be comforted. For those who are meek, guess what? You shall inherit not only heaven, but earth itself. For those who hunger and thirst for an alien righteousness, the Lord promises that He will truly satisfy. But now as we come to the final four blessings, and we look at this fifth blessing this morning, we see that there is something of a shift that takes place. We find that these last four blessings are largely horizontal in character. That is to say, they regard our relationship with one another and our disposition to sinners around us, and the purity of heart that governs our present conduct, and the work of peacemaking and reconciliation, and even how we respond to those who slander and persecute the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have to remember these are not uh, commands. These are not conditions. These are Blessings. In other words, what we're seeing here in the Beatitudes is Jesus is pronouncing a blessing on the citizens of heaven that transforms their relationships through and through, both vertically and horizontally. And Jesus blesses the citizens of heaven by giving this promise that the Spirit will transform our relationships both with God and with our neighbor. And so now this morning, we can begin to consider our relationships with one another as we attend to the matter of mercy. Three things I'd like us to consider this morning. First, we're going to consider the merciful God. Secondly, we'll consider merciless men. And finally, we'll consider the merciful heirs of heaven. So the merciful God, merciless men, and the merciful heirs of heaven. We begin with God. Intentionally, and I think for good reason. Even though I've now just said that the first four blessings deal by and large Uh, with man's relationship to God, and the second four deal with man's relationship to man. Uh, We also need to recognize it's not exclusive. They spill over and bleed into one another. We see that the way in which we interact with one another is a reflection of our right standing with God. It's not the grounds for our right standing with God, but rather we'll see it is a reflection. It's the very thing that uh, the Apostle John says in his first uh, epistle. If we say we love God and we hate our neighbor, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. In other words, you cannot have a rightly ordered vertical relationship with God without seeing a fundamental change in how you treat those around you. And so we still have to, even as we're talking about our relationship with one another, we begin with God because God is the source of all blessing and all mercy. It's the great revelation of God's gracious and merciful character. Exodus chapter 33, as Moses is standing on the heights of Sinai, communing with God for those 40 days as he has received the law, Moses has one special plea that he makes God in heaven above. That plea is this, he says, Lord, show me your glory. The Lord's response is firm. He says, Moses, nobody can see me and live, yourself included. But here's what I will do, Moses. I'm going to hide you here in this crevice here in the mountain. I'm going to shield your eyes with my very hand, as it were. And I'm going to pass before you. And as I'm passing before the side of the mountain, though you cannot see me, I will declare the glory of my name. The name that summarizes the essence of God's character and His disposition to the human race. He says, I will pass by and declare My name to you. And as the Lord passes by, He declares His glory in these very words. The Lord, the Lord Merciful. Other attributes he declares, but the Lord begins with mercy. You might put it like this. That mercy is the chief attribute by which God manifests the glory of His name. What is the very first thing the Lord wants to communicate to Moses after revealing His name, the great I Am, to him? That the great I am who is in need of nothing, the great I am who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, the great I am who is not defined or characterized or moved by outside people or passions or pleasures, the God who does what He wants, what is it that He does? The Lord, the Lord, merciful God reveals His glory in so many ways in the creation of the world, in the daily affairs of providence, but consummately, God's glory is revealed in His mercy to sinners. A mercy that is centered on the forgiveness of sins. See, mercy forms and formed the centerpiece of Israel's religion. As the nation was encamped in the wilderness, what stood in the center? As, as this was an army on the move and they were surrounded, they had, they had four, uh, kind of four walls, as it were, as they marched in formation. What stood at the center of the camp it was the tent of meeting. And what stood in the center of the tent, the tabernacle, it was the Holy of Holies. And what resided there in the Holy of Holies? Just one thing it's the Ark of the Covenant. Where only one man, one day a year, the high priest could enter, and only then could he enter when smoke filled the room, as so to shield him from the sight of the presence of God, visibly manifested there in the Holy of Holies. But what is located there on top of the tabernacle, or on top of the ark? What was the title for that? What was the name? It was the mercy seat. The mercy seat that becomes synonymous with God's throne as He speaks of the covenant as a symbol of His throne. As it is surrounded on both sides by winged cherubim. The synonym for God's throne is itself the mercy seat. It should tell us how central mercy is to biblical religion. It is the great prayer of the psalmist, as we read together a few moments ago in Psalm 51, as David himself says, have mercy on me, O God, not according to my best intentions, not according to the most recent display or acts of charity that I've demonstrated, not on the basis of my own good works, but have mercy on me, O God, according to your covenant faithfulness according to Your steadfast love, blot out all of my transgressions. David doesn't pray this after running a stop sign late one night. David's not praying this after uh, accidentally uh, flubbing up on his taxes. David has committed some pretty heinous acts of sin. You read Psalm 51, we know the context. This is after David has used all of his power and authority as the king of the nation to lure a married woman into his own lair so that he might have his way with her. When it turns out she is now with child. He has her husband murdered. And then he acts to cover it up and then he's confronted by it and initially denies the accusations. These are not small items of sin. If you were to hear of a politician that did something like this today, could you imagine what would happen to that man if that news was made public? And such is the king of the nation. Rape, adultery, murder, cover-up, conspiracy he's exposed he doesn't even come as his own accuser initially the Nathan the prophet Nathan is the one who outs him and then David fully comes clean David has no recourse left to fall upon but the mercy of God he has nowhere left to turn he has no way to make restitution for this a man is now dead. A family has now been torn apart by his own transgression. So David comes before the Lord not hiding the heinousness of his sin. Not toning it down or soft-pedaling it. He says, O oh God, show mercy. Because it is the only thing that David has to stand upon. And what do we find in terms of the Lord's response? But the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious. Far more merciful than we'd ever find anybody in the media today. Far more merciful than we find in our own hearts. The Lord is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And the Lord does just what He has promised to do. He blots out every last one of David's sins and transgressions. See, when we speak of the mercy of God, we are speaking of God's own deep-seated disposition towards sinners. Paul speaks of God being rich in mercy. So often, I think we think of God as being anemic in mercy as if he is some more, somehow, as it were, strapped for cash. I've got two or three mercy bills I can send your way. But I've got to wait till next payday to give you any more mercy. That is not the God of the Bible. Here is the Lord, the Lord abounding in steadfast love and mercy. A God who is not anemic in mercy, but one who superabounds in it whose mercy is so abundant that He has so ordered all of history to demonstrate His own mercy and kindness to sinners at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where our sins, the penalty of our sin, might be put to death so that God might have mercy upon those who do not deserve it. And isn't that the very definition of mercy? Where God gives to us those things that we do not deserve. He withholds from us those things that we do deserve. Such is the grace and mercy of our great God. But as we read in the Scriptures, we think that isn't great enough. We find that God's mercy is even more than that. God's mercy consists in even more than the forgiveness of sins. What we find is God's mercy also consists in deliverance from oppression. Over and over again, you read the Psalms, and the psalmist will also be said to pray, Have mercy upon me, O God, deliver me from my foes. You read about that in Psalm 28, Psalm 30, Psalm 31, Psalm 40, Psalm 55, Psalm 69, Psalm 119, Psalm 123, Psalm 140. Hopefully you get the gist. The the, the idea here is this. As the psalmist goes to the Lord, when he pleads for mercy, it's not just mercy for the forgiveness of sins. It is mercy from the estate of sin and misery into which he has been thrust. As the psalmist, whether it be David or any other of the psalm singers we come across in the psalms, find themselves in a state of misery as they are under the thumb of those who sin against them. We find the saints of all pleading for relief that the Lord might deliver them as well from these particular circumstances. Think of Psalm chapter 142, where the psalmist says, With my voice I cry out to the Lord, with my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord, and I pray, Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me the psalmist throws himself at the mercy of God, praying for deliverance as well. See, as we contemplate the richness of God's mercy, we find that it not only regards God's forbearance towards sinners, as Romans 2 tells us, that it is the forbearance and mercy of God, the kindness of God, that leads us to repentance as He suffers long with sinners. God could have easily struck an All of us down, that the very first sin we ever committed when we were like three hours old, he could have easily struck us from the womb, but he doesn't. He extends mercy to sinners throughout the whole course of their life, bearing long with them, as it is the kindness of God that is intended to lead man to repentance. We find that the mercy of God not only consists in the forbearance of sins, that long-suffering that He shows each and every one of us, but it also consists in the forgiveness of sins as we've considered. But here we find it's more than that as well. It's a deep-seated disposition whereby He delights to deliver us from all the consequences of the fall as well. Not only our sin, but our misery. What a refreshing contrast God's gracious character is compared to the, to the merciless race of men. That we can come before the Lord. We're going to talk about this more in a few moments. When we ask for mercy, why is it that we call, for instance, the work of the diaconate, a work of mercy ministry? Is this just some kind of superficial add-on? Or is it somehow reflective of the merciful character of our merciful God? What we see here is when we consider the character of God as He's revealed to us in the Scriptures, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, we find that there is a wideness in God's mercy that is not found in the natural human heart. And So I think we need to take a few moments to consider how great a contrast is the character of God from human nature you read the Psalms and the Proverbs, and you find that they continually direct our attention to the treachery of ruthless and merciless men. Men who are ruthless in their disposition and in their deeds towards one another. Even as David says in Psalm 9 and 14 that there are none righteous, no, not one. Everyone does evil. Everyone is, their mouths are like a, like a serpent's lair seeking to strike and poison and murder one another. We find that the Scriptures say that the merciless man treats men as beasts. And yet, even the beasts he treats with contempt. Think of Proverbs chapter 12. Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. What a contrast it is between the merciful man and the merciless man. The merciless man is cruel to everyone. Man or beast alike. It is subhuman the way in which fallen humanity treats one another. Unregenerate man is anemic in mercy. Even under the guise of justice. Some of y'all have heard the phrase the cold hand of justice. I don't think it's a biblical concept. I think one of the if I can illustrate this for but a moment for those of you who have uh, either seen the musical or or watched the movie or David, who just finished the book this week, Les Miserables, I think it really highlights the nature of justice in a beautiful way. Here, the author, Victor Hugo, illustrates. Uh, wonderfully as he contrasts two particular men, Javert and Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean is a man who has been released from prison. He has spent over a decade under hard labor for stealing a loaf of bread. And as he's released from prison, it turns out he breaks parole. And now a police inspector by the name of Javert seeks to track him down as the cold hand of justice. Spends years hunting down this man to shut him behind bars for good, because he violated his parole after spending was it, 14 years for stealing a loaf of bread. How many, how many of us, when we think of God being the God of justice, view God along those lines? And so often we want to pit justice against mercy as if they are two antithetical things. And there is in one sense a sense in which we can recognize that there is something of a contrast, but they are not in conflict with one another. One another. I want mean, you to consider what the Bible says as uh, the prophet Isaiah speaks in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. He tells the people of God, he says that the Lord longs to show mercy. We you ask why? Why is it that the Lord longs to show mercy? Isaiah gives the answer. It's for this reason. Because Yahweh is a God of justice. How many of us would ever expect that to be the answer? So often we think of justice and mercy as being pitted against one another, and yet here, what Isaiah is saying, the very reason the Lord is merciful is because He is just. In other words, mercy is not something antithetical to the hand of justice. Mercy is something that characterizes, that shapes, that molds, that gives disposition to what true justice really is. Think of what the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 1. That our Savior is not only faithful, but He is just to forgive sin. So God is not somehow reluctantly disposed to pardon sinners. I think when we think of the justice of God, we have this idea that God is somehow neutral. If anything, kind of doesn't really want to deal with sinners. But that is not what the Bible says. That because God is perfectly righteous and holy and just, that in His justice, it is a merciful justice. It is a justice nonetheless that justice has to be reckoned with and that justice is met with at the cross. But the cross is not something that the Lord reluctantly allows to happen. For God so loved the world that He sent His Son. Not that Christ sent His Son that He might love the world. No, the love of God is antecedent to the cross. The love of God is what motivates and drives the Father to send the Son. The love of God is the very thing that the the, the, the Son willingly undertakes so that sinners might receive mercy. This is the Lord's disposition. It is a merciful disposition. Holy and righteous as He is. This is why Peter can in fact say that the Lord desires that all men reach repentance even though not all men truly do reach repentance. Why is it that Jesus, as He makes His way to Jerusalem, will with tears in His eyes like the prophet of Jeremiah say, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to bring You under My wings as a hen seeks to cover her brood from the coming fire. But you would not have it. So I think we have such an anemic view of the mercy of God because we are not used to such mercy. Our mercy, the mercy that we find in the human heart, is so anemic compared to the wideness of the ocean and depths of God's mercy, in particular, His mercy to sinners. We think we get God's justice, but precisely because we do not grasp His mercy, I would contend that we don't grasp His justice much either. Sure, we might see vestiges of mercy in the human heart, but it's not a mercy that runs deep. Not compared to the mercy that is found in God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Only the heart that has been cleansed by the Spirit of grace will have that deep well of mercy hidden within that gushes forth Not just in a response of praise to the merciful God, but it is a merciful heart that now is disposed to showing mercy to those all around Him. That leads us to our final point as we consider what it means to be blessed here. Jesus is pronouncing a blessing on those who have received mercy. Such mercy is truly spiritual. In other words, to say, Jesus is saying this is a work of the Spirit. But such spirit wrought mercy is not only concerned with men's souls, it's concerned with their body as well. Remember what we said earlier that uh, mercy in the Old Testament, even in the Psalms, is not just mercy with regard to sin, but mercy as regards living in, under the consequences of a fallen world. Sure, the merciful man forbears. In kindness, he suffers long with those who mistreat him. And by the way, that should assume that the Christian will be sinned against on a regular basis. Uh, Just because we have been brought into the kingdom of light, we should not assume that everything is going to be safe and hunky-dory from now to glory. No, Jesus says, if you want to follow Me, you've got to take up a cross. That means suffering under the weight of affliction and being sinned against by others. What we see the blessings beginning to do is begins to transform our response to those sinful uh, uh, acts of sin and aggression against us. The merciful man will forbear with those who sin against him. He might suffer long with those who mistreat him. If they seek his pardon, he will willingly and graciously bestow that pardon of sin over and over and over again. Not just 70 times. 70 times 7, as Jesus says. What we find is the merciful man is concerned not only with the spiritual needs, as it were, of those around him. He's also concerned with his physical needs. Uh, well-being. That's why we call the work of the diaconate a mercy ministry. It's fully biblical. It arises from the Psalms. The merciful man cares for his neighbor, not only in his estate of sin, but also in his misery. Consider Psalm 41, how blessed is the man who considers the poor. How blessed is the merciful man Proverbs 19.17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. There's a real concern here that the Lord begins to work in the heart of the citizens of heaven. That we would be concerned not only for the destitute, for those who are poor, but also for the battered. You remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? If a man who comes to Jesus says, well, What should I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? Jesus starts talking about what it means to be a good neighbor. He says, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of a man who is beat up by a bunch of bandits. All that he has on him is stripped. He's left for dead. And of course, we know the story. It is the Samaritan, it is the half-breed who comes and cares for the man. But then Jesus asks... The man at the end of the parable, he says, well, who, who's the good neighbor? What's the man's response? He says, what's the man who showed mercy? What's Jesus' response to him? Therefore, you go and you do likewise. We can't over-spiritualize this particular parable. Here's a man who has been beat up and left for dead. And an act of mercy consists in caring for the man who has been wounded. Seeking to his recovery. Seeking to his restoration. Tending to his bruises and wounds. Seeking uh, even providing financial assistance, assistance, as it were, from a brutal gang attack. Jesus says, to his hearers, to be a good neighbor is to go and do likewise. It's a concern not just for the soul of man, but for his physical well-being. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells the story of the unmerciful servant. Why is he unmerciful? Because he refuses uh, to remit a great amount of debt. So these are really physical things. The Lord cares for us in body and soul. Mercy is not something just for the conscience. Mercy is something that spills over for the whole man. That's why Paul will speak in Colossians as having bowels of compassion. This is not a superficial act, but it is a compassionate mercy that runs deep, that mirrors the rich mercy found in God who had mercy on us in body and in soul. It's so easy to have compassion and show mercy to our, our dog or our friends, maybe even our family members. And certainly that ought to be reiterated. Jesus himself castigates the Pharisees because they, they refuse to show mercy on their parents. They keep setting aside a certain amount of money and using it that, like these, these legal loopholes so they don't have to care for their parents, the, the so-called Corbin Laws. Sinclair Ferguson, in commenting on this particular beatitude, this blessing, says how dangerous it is to use God's law as a means to hide behind as an excuse so as not to show mercy to others. That's the very thing Jesus accuses the Pharisees of doing. What is it he tells the Pharisees? He says, you need to go and learn this. That I desire mercy and not Sacrifice. James writes, true religion consists in this. That is pure and undefiled before God the Father. And consists in visiting the orphans and the widows in their affliction. And in keeping oneself unstained from the world. I think so many of us would be prone to say, well, yeah, true religion is saying unstained from the world. But James takes it a step further and says, well, you've got to put your money where your mouth is. There's a real care for those around us, and that is a real instantiation of mercy ministry. They cannot be separated. We're not, the church isn't simply just to be the Red Cross 2.0. as the gospel is prepared it is pronounced as a declaration of god's mercy to sinners in christ but with it comes the recognition that god cares for his people both body and in soul and that's what the work of the diaconate is for as you recall last year when we worked our way through second corinthians chapters 8 and 9 are devoted to this very thing as a famine has struck out in, has plagued jerusalem and so many believers are now without food and water So Paul is now going from church to church collecting a diaconal offering so that they might buy food for the poor in Jerusalem. And he calls it an act of mercy. And he directs Christians to the mercy of God found in Christ as the motivation for why we do this. For He who is rich beyond all splendor for love's sake became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich you read the old testament as well this we find this is nothing new is the prophet isaiah asks the people of god what is the true meaning of fasting what is the true meaning of sabbath observance is it not to break the bonds of oppression is it not to lift up the downcast is it not to share your bread with the hungry to bring the homeless poor into your house and to cover the naked In other words, there's a real concern in both the Old and New Testament for deeds of mercy. And Jesus here does not distinguish between the two when he talks about the merciful. So part of our task is to recognize when Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, we need to recognize it's showing mercy to those who have sinned against us, but also caring for those who live in an estate of sin and misery. It's easy to do for friends and family. Even the pagans recognize that. It's one of the five major tenets of Islam, in fact. But Jesus takes it one step further. He says we do do this not only for friends, not only for family. We also do it for our enemies as well. Even under Moses, the people were trained and instructed to show mercy in such a way. Exodus chapter 23, if you see the donkey of the man who hates you lying under its burden, you shall refrain him from leaving with it. You shall rescue it with him. In other words, even Moses was giving an example of what it means to show mercy. You see, the man you can't stand, or at least the man you know can't stand you in the work office. His car's broken down you're driving by, you just don't secretly go, yes, I hope his day is ruined. What does it mean to be merciful? It means to care, even for your enemy and body and soul. To be merciful to your enemy assumes that you will suffer and be defrauded at times. In fact, the Lord here gives no guarantee that showing them mercy will in fact transform their life. But for the blessed man that will not stop him, I need to think of yourself like the Johnny Appleseed of showing mercy. You just throw mercy left and right everywhere you go. Does that mean every little seed's going to sprout into a tree? Maybe, maybe not. Doesn't matter. The merciful man shows mercy. Leave the rest to the Lord. See, that's why I think this blessing is so significant. For so many Christians today, I think we consider true Christian piety as being bound up in our own private spiritual experiences. But the the Beatitudes upend all of this. The holiness is found in our relationships. The citizen of heaven finds that the great blessing consists... Not merely in having a, a, a time of private communion with God behind closed doors, though that is true. We'll see that when we get to chapter 6. What we see here is that the blessed man is a man whose life has been transformed by the Spirit. Where our vertical relationship with God has been rectified so that it now spills over into our horizontal relationships with one another, where we now begin to mirror towards others the very same way in which God has treated us. The blessed man, according to Jesus, sees the Spirit transforming his relationship in uh, in the lives of those around him. If I can maybe repeat this, uh, rephrase it another way. As the Spirit begins to reorder our lives, We begin to treat others differently. It might not change how they respond to us. We pray that it does. But it does change. The work of the Spirit changes how you relate to them. Here the Spirit works in our hearts to change our attitude and how we love them. That we learn to suffer long with them. That we display an extravagant forgiveness when they plead for it. That we retain a legitimate concern for their material well-being. The merciful man strives to lift the burdens of those groaning under the weight of sin. This is why Jude will say in Jude 23, have mercy on those who doubt. There's an act of mercy and compassion in dealing with those who struggle with the assurance of salvation. You give them the comfort of the Gospel. But the merciful man also seeks to alleviate the material difficulties of the destitute. Again, that is what the work of the diaconate is for. James says, a man comes knocking on your door in the middle of the night and says, hey, uh, I'm hungry. Do you have some bread? And you say, well, come back tomorrow and I'll do it. Or, you you know what, brother, I'll pray for you that the Lord gives you something to eat. Now leave me alone. No, an act of mercy is really providing for those in real need. Doing so wisely. As Proverbs spells out for us what wisdom in those matters look like in all sorts of situations. But here we're called to delight in it, to practice deeds of mercy, as Paul says in Romans 12, with cheerfulness. Why is it that we do these things cheerfully? Well, it's because of this that the merciful man knows what it is like to need mercy. That's what we see here the relationship between the first and second half of this verse. The blessing is not causal. The reason I began with God was for a reason. I think so many of us look at this and say, okay, if I want to get mercy from God, I've got to show mercy first. That is not the proper relationship that, uh, between these two parts of the verse, though. Our Lord does not say, be merciful so that you can receive mercy. This is not a command. This is a blessing. That's why I, be- I begin every week saying this. These are blessings, not commands. Jesus is not saying stock up your mercy points by showing mercy so that you could cash in your chips at the final judgment. There is a relationship between these two clauses, but it is not causal. It is not contingent upon merit. If it was contingent upon merit, it would cease to be mercy. Jesus' point is this, and that's why I've ordered the sermon in this way is that the ones who have received mercy show mercy. Think of it as a spiritual trickle-down effect. Mercy rolls downhill. Just as God has shown you mercy and He's blessed you with mercy, so those who have truly tasted the Lord's goodness, they begin to show mercy to all around them. Here we find though a blessing that's bookended by mercy. God has shown you mercy and now the one who has received mercy shows mercy because he understands as the psalmist says in Psalm 130 that, oh Lord, if you would but mark one of my iniquities against me, I couldn't stand. No one else on earth could stand either. So we're all in need of mercy. It were not for the mercy of God, we would all be without hope. But God has demonstrated His mercy in this very thing that even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Christ, the sinless one, showed his mercy when we did not deserve it. And now those who are in Christ will begin to show that same mercy that we have been shown. Those who have been forgiven much, forgive much. The great kingdom blessing Jesus pronounces here is this that those whose lives have been transformed by the mercy of God themselves become channels of God's mercy to others. The mercy might roll down like mighty mighty waters that righteousness would flow like an ever-flowing stream. Let us pray. Our Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do ask uh, that as we contemplate Your mercy given to us in Christ, uh, that with cheerful and free hearts, we might show mercy to those around us in body and soul. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.